0: Well, it's really nice to be here amongst you all. I've never been to a service at St. Paul's Cathedral and it's awesome, it's wonderful. Um, I don't know how I was first introduced to the icon because um, I have to confess I'm slightly ignorant of Eastern Orthodox spirituality and their icons. But somehow when I first saw this one, there was an instant appeal, which I think a lot of people find. And I'm asking myself, what was it that arrested me? And I think there's a sense of harmony, great beauty, curvaceous lines, a fresh palette, and a sense of mutual love between them. So I bought myself a little printed copy on a wooden board and I had it um, in my little study that I have at home. And then about five years ago, I had to have an eye operation completely out of the blue, but apparently uh, there we have at the back of our eye a little macula which is responsible for our detailed seeing and that had got torn. So the surgeon said, well, I can, I can mend it but you will have to lie face downwards for a fortnight. And I thought, ooh, I am a very active person. I cannot imagine doing that. Um, But with the help of a friend and my husband, we extended a garden bed and cut a hole in it and um, padded it round with pillows. and I got myself quite comfortable, actually. But it was really boring looking at the floor. And so I said to my husband, you know what I'd really like there is my little icon. So down it went in front of me and it was my companion for a fortnight and when I had to resume vertical living it was actually quite a shame really. It had a, what had, could have been so difficult had turned out to be gift. And icons asked to be gazed at because then they begin to reveal what is there because icons are windows onto the divine. I've had a few people say to me, since I wrote this little book, it's only a humble book, I have to say, it's just my personal discovery, and and it's not an academic book in any way at all, but they've said, you know, I can't agree with you, because icons have to be idolatry. Um, You're putting something in place of God himself and that's sad because it's a very mistaken notion but it's one that Emperor Leo the of Byzantium had also and uh, in 1726 he began his great destruction of icons throughout Byzantium and it lasted for until 842 with only a respite of 28 years in the middle, but in that 28 years the Second Council of Nicaea was held and some very strict guidelines were written down about icons and their use. They were to be venerated, not worshipped, because worship belongs to God alone in the service this morning in the Gloria for you alone are holy you alone are the Lord you alone are the most high Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father so icons are to be venerated to be held in great respect honored for their qualities of holiness and used as aids to worship, but not to be worshipped. And the Council also ruled on the subjects that could be, well, uh, Orthodox um, people would really say written. I'm I'm going to use the word painted because it sits more comfortably with me. But they ruled on the subjects that could be painted. Only the Son, who became incarnate and took our flesh upon him, could be represented in an icon. The Father and the Spirit, who are invisible, cannot. An icon is not a picture. Creating an icon is not just about mastering the skills of the craft. It's about prayer, about repentance, fasting, and meditation. And it was seen by iconographers as a heavenly work given by God for his glory alone. And so they took great time and discipline in repentance and in preparing themselves for the work that God had given them to do. And throughout the painting of the icon, they would remain prayerful. Nothing is hurried about the process of creating an icon. The preparation of the board alone can take up to almost a week. So particular on having a knot-free board which they plane and rub and... um, create a bit of a frame. This one actually hasn't so much, but a bit of a frame around it. And uh, that has to be meticulously done. And then they glue on a piece of linen and prepare the gesso, which is powdered marble or alabaster or high-quality chalk and layer upon layer, smoothed out between each layer, is put on. Could be eight layers, could be up to 20. All taken slowly, prayerfully. Then they prick out the design, and the designs are traditional. They're not exactly copying, but they're painting from earlier icons prick out the design and then first of all they apply the gold leaf where it is decided they're going to have the gold and then mixing egg yolk with ground pigments of color they begin to paint and they start with the darker colors and come towards the lighter colors and end with highlighting with white or gold or whatever. Iconographers can choose their palette but there are symbolic colours so blue represents divinity, red would represent blood, (coughs) orange fire, green for youth and freshness and creation, brown for earth purple for splendor, white for purity, and gold is associated with sanctity, glory, and the divine life of God. And the name of the subjects of the icon would be inscribed above each figure, but there would be no signature of the iconographer. He would remain quite anonymous. And then the icon would be covered with what they call olifer, which is boiled linseed oil, it acts as a varnish to protect from the the soot and from the candles, um, but also to bring out the colours so that it glows even more. Then, very importantly, before it's given to wherever it's been commissioned for, It is placed on the altar of the church, and it is blessed, first by the iconographer and then by the priest, and only then can it be given to wherever, maybe a monastery, maybe a church, maybe even a home. The golden age of iconography in Russia was in the 14th and the 15th centuries, and it was partly due to the rise of monasticism. And one of the great iconographers of that time was Andrei Rublev. And not much is known about him, actually, except that he was a monk and that he combined a depth of spirituality with incredible artistic ability. And in about 1425, he and his friend, Daniel, who was also a monk, were asked to paint the the icons for the Cathedral of the Holy Trinity at Sergeyev Posad. Under communist times, it was called Zagorsk. It's now back to its original name. And it was to be, this church was erected in honor of the founder of that monastery, St. Sergius of Radanesh. And I've written, he was a most remarkable man, and I've written more about him in, in the book. So it was a great honor for André to be asked. But even more so because one of the spaces he was given was to the right of the royal doors. And uh, there he would paint this particular icon, the icon of the Trinity. Through the royal doors was the sanctuary where the Eucharist was celebrated. And uh, today there is a, a replica hanging in the the Cathedral of the Holy Trinity uh, in the most beautiful monastery. I think somebody else has been to it. She was telling me at Sergei Posad. If you go to Russia and you see the the, um, the icon in Moscow where it hangs now, do please take a train journey an hour away and go to the monastery that it was commissioned for. It's just wonderful and out of a little wooden hut in a clearing on the hillside, where um, his name first was Bartholomew, and his brother started just living simply, building a little hut, which we call their church, now has grown to this amazing lavra, which is a, a cathedral, a monastery, that's grown out of a hermitage, and has many buildings in its enclave. Well, over the years, the soot did damage, as it has, uh, the icon. It went very black. They didn't know how to clean it, so they overpainted it, feeling the outline with darker colours. Still, it went black. So they covered it with a silver or maybe a gold oclad metal covering, only leaving, exposing, the faces and the hands and the feet. So it was completely covered up, really. But in 1905, they began to find ways and techniques of cleaning and restoring icons, and it had its first cleaning. And then in 1919, 1929, I should say, more work was done, and it was moved to the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow. It wasn't designed to be hung in a gallery, icons are meant to be in places of worship but there it hangs safe in its glass case and after having had this experience of this I time um, and the icon time I used the material for a quiet day and the husband of the commissioning editor of BRF happened to be on that quiet day and he's responsible for this he went back and said to his wife, I think it should be in book form. And I had never written anything in my life before. A simple housewife, <laughs> taking me totally out of my comfort zone. But I think when you get into your 70s, you take whatever opportunity comes your way and don't pass anything up. So I began to write. And the person who helped me a lot was somebody who lived in Oxford, who is an iconographer herself. And it was she who said, I think we should go to Russia and see it. So we went in January in
1: freezing
0: cold weather and went into the, the gallery and sort of enveloped by the warmth of the gallery. And there was this sense of going through that room and that room and this corridor. And when would we see it? She knew where it was. And then suddenly there it was in its cool, calm beckoning. And it's big. It's 55 by 44 inches. It's a good-sized icon there's nothing small at all and it was the Russian uh, the still the holidays after Christmas and so the gallery was crowded but I just stood transfixed in front of it and even though there were many people around it draws you in so in this icon which I'll begin now to to look at more in detail we're not just looking at three angels with their wings, but at the Trinity and at the harmony and the love that exists between them. It's a visual expression of the Trinity. But how could, how could they paint when they're forbidden? The Father and the Son. I mean, the Father and the Spirit. Well, the way they did it, and it wasn't the first, I mean, There were many earlier icons of this image of the angels. The way they did it was to take the story, which is told in Genesis, of the three who visited Abraham actually to announce the birth of Isaac. And at the beginning of the story, when Abraham greets them and offers them a meal in typical Middle Eastern hospitality, they are three. But halfway through the story, it says the Lord said and it was as if the three became one and iconographers grabbed the story and thought yes this is what we can use not only to remain faithful to the story and you will see in a moment there are quite a few bits of the story that are there but also to use it as a symbol for the trinity so each of them possess the fullness of the Godhead and Rublev has deliberately given them similar faces figures and hairstyles only differentiating them by their clothing to indicate their identity the three angels have equal importance and there's a sense of history because of the context but also a sense of timelessness their faces are youthful and yet there's a quiet maturity you could say they're neither male nor female or you could say they're they're both male and female their halos depict their holiness. And the stave that each one holds gives them authority, but also has that sense of being a messenger, as in the biblical story. They're similar and yet different. Each one of them lives for the others, and they are in eternal communion. I think they give the impression of perfect unity and those wings at the back sort of form an enclosing curtain behind them which emphasises the bond between them. And it echoes Jesus' prayer to his Father that they may be one as we are one. And as you gaze at the icon, to me there is both rest and movement, a sense of movement frozen in time and conversation arrested and their stillness draws us into stillness. As in every icon there is what they call sacred geometry used but Rublev was the first to use the circle Uh, Is a complete circle that goes around the outer, I also think there's a circle within as well. And a circle is a sign of eternity. There are two triangles across the heads of the uh, angels and to the point at the bottom and across and up to the angel, the middle angel at the top. And those two triangles form a star. There's also an octagon if you take it across and down both sides of the angels' heads and down and round and across at the bottom. And an octagon was a a sacred shape too. It was meant to represent the seven days of creation and the day of resurrection. And often, I looked here in St. Paul's, but it defies it, Um, Here you have uh, an oval baptismal font, but many baptismal fonts are octagonal. In iconography, there is something that is different to a picture where you would look for the vanishing point going into the distance. This is reverse perspective. The icon comes towards you, to meet you. And, of course, the bold thing that um, Rublev has done in other earlier icons of this scene, we have Abraham and Sarah in there and a servant and an ox and about three chalices on the table and platters. He's removed all of that. He's stripped it to the minimum, given absolute simplicity, so that when you stand in front of it, it's you and them. And his palette, pure gold, and azure blue, which is lapis lazuli, and he was the first to use it. Lapis lazuli came from Persia, now today is Afghanistan. Moss green, red-brown, ivory, and it makes for a very fresh and cool palette and I think when you're in the gallery you notice the difference between this icon and the others. In this icon heaven touches earth. In his defense Stephen in Acts chapter 7 said of God heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool and we have this lovely green base of his footstool. The three figures. Because, over time, the the engraving, which is which, has gone, in a way, you can be left to uh, use your own as you want to, as you choose. But in early icons, Christ was always in the centre. And I like to read it as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But I think it's the Holy Spirit that draws us in. And he's clothed in blue and green. Blue is common to all of them because they're divine. And the spirit has this lovely freshness about him. I, in my book I, I seem to think of bluebell woods in spring. It's that beautiful awakening freshness. And he has a hand that is they are all blessing the chalice, in which, actually, in the painting you will see, contains a head of a calf, which was, of course, the original meal that Abraham served, but we think of it as not wine in there, but, but that's what, uh, obviously, we, we take it for ourselves to mean, because of the whole meaning in the icon, which will become a bit clearer later on. But The Holy Spirit is blessing it, but it's a downward blessing. His staff is the only one that you can see full length. It's as if he is reaching out to us. And behind him is a mountain, if you can see it, a wiggly kind of shaped mountain. It could be Moriah, where Abraham was shortly to be asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It could be Sinai but I think it represents faith. And the spirit does not let us stay with himself. His work is to reveal God the Father through God the Son to us. And so his head is inclined towards the Son and towards the Father. God the Son in the center. His robes are virtually in half, half brown, half blue, the, du- the dual nature of the incarnate man and the divine God. He is the one who unites heaven and Earth. And he has this kingly band of gold. And interestingly, his right hand is free from his uh, outer mantle. And the hand of the Spirit, his left hand, is free from the outer mantle. And the early Fathers in the Orthodox Church would teach that the Father and the Son were the two hands of God through which he did his work. He also blesses the cup of sacrifice. And if you put a a ring, look at the icon through a ring, The middle point of that circle are those two fingers. He is the one who is himself the sacrifice. And then, it came late in my gazing, I suddenly looked and saw for the first time the shape that contains that central figure. And if you look at the shape of the angels either side they formed a chalice he is the sacrifice and behind him is a tree obviously representing the oaks of marmary where under which abraham sat could also be the tree of good and evil maybe the tree of life and of course the cross and peter in his epistle writes Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And if you trace the shape of the cross, from the line from the tree, down the fingers, the chalice, to the box shape at the front of the altar, and across the heads of the two angels either side, you have this cross. Because no circle without a cross no eternal life without death, no heavenly kingdom without Calvary. If you covered up that head, I think you might think that that figure would look straight at you. But in fact, Jesus is looking towards the Father and his head is turned to the receptive figure on the left and there's a gaze of love and obedience and submission. <coughs> he only did what his father told him to do, he only spoke the words that his father gave him to speak. Throughout his life on this earth he lived out of the father. And so we turn to the figure on the left, God the Father, the slightest, I think, of the three figures, has an air of mystery about him. And over his blue garment, he wears a shimmering, iridescent robe of pink and brown and hues of blue and green. It's beautiful to look at. Jesus had said, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He's seen the Father. It's Jesus who makes the Father known to us, and so in the icon, Jesus leans towards the Father. The Father could stop the motion. The house above him is upright, whereas the, the tree and the mountain both reflect the inclination of those other two figures, the house is upright. But he doesn't, because although not as inclined, his head is still toward the other two, and so the circle goes round. And in Orthodox teaching, of course, it is that the, Father, the, the Son and the Spirit issue from the Father. In Western Christianity, we think of the Spirit issuing from God the Father and God the Son. But Andrei Rublev is painting out of the Orthodox tradition. So the Father exists to give life eternally to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit are living because they in turn give themselves to the Father. And each person of the Trinity lives only for the others, in perfect interdependence. And so the Father too is blessing the cup of sacrifice. It's his initiative. It's the Son who carries it out. But I comes to me that the words from that hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, did e'er such love and sorrow meet? It's a costly mission, and it was for us. And as I said, above the father's head is a house with an open door symbolizing Abraham's dwelling, although, of course, in fact, he lived in a tent. But in the deeper meaning of the icon, it could refer to the church or to the words of Jesus in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And then there's that odd little box at the front of the altar. And nobody quite knows what that could be, but there are three possibilities. Uh, One, a place of the reliquary or of the martyrs, the four corners of the earth, because when Rublev was painting, I think they still believe the earth was flat, or the place for the reserved sacrament. But whichever of those three It all has to do with us, God's creation. And the Trinity is not an exclusive relationship. It's opened up to us. It's a dance and we're invited to join in. And the wonderful thing about this icon that is so moving is that there is a space at the table for us, the viewer if we come into that space we then form not only a vertical circle but a horizontal circle and i find that the most precious image to have in my mind when i come to take communion because when you come into that space who are you faced with but the one who died for you who gave his life out of love for you who is blessing the sacrifice for all of us. And I find that very moving, very challenging too. It was a cup that he would have preferred not to have drunk. We have him in Gethsemane saying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. Hard for the Father to hear those words. But Jesus drank it to the dregs and gave himself to be crucified, out of love for us. And I have to say, as I end, that this icon has really changed my thinking on the Trinity. I don't know if you were there in the service this morning, I really appreciated Giles' sermon, um, because he talked about the up and the feeling of God above. And then he's, he went to see the trouble, and the problems with the up, and to look at the down of the, the Trinity coming into life as it is, coming into the mess of human existence. And now, instead of a pyramidal view of the Trinity, there, me and other mortals down here, I now see it as a circle, a circle of love, a movement, not just a noun, a being, but a verb, a movement of love, a relational communion that not just moves within itself, but by centrifugal force almost reaches out beyond itself to scoop us in. And the whole quality and character of that love is self-giving. And that's the love that we are, if we allow ourselves, we have actually the control as to whether we allow ourselves to be in that flow or not. But the flow that we're invited to join in is a flow that asks us to be self-giving and to get involved in this world in which we live. There's a flow of love and of life that we're invited to enter into. So I hope that as you approach Trinity Sunday uh, some of the thoughts that have come out of this magnificent icon will enlarge your understanding of the Trinity and deepen your life in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to end with a poem by George Herbert. And as you look at the icon, and think about the space at the table that is left for you, hear these words, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. "A A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I think we might just take two minutes of our own quiet gazing on the icon to let anything come home to you.
1: Well, thank you, Anne. Goodness, um, looking at it for two minutes was rather amazing. So looking at it for two weeks must have been absolutely extraordinary. Um, my, I'm just going to hog a first question, and then I'm going to open it up. Um, for me, this was a very uh, radical book, as I said, and a very radical image, and I think that's because I have, I've trained as an art historian, and um, I've spent a long time looking at Western images of the Trinity, which are characteristically genuinely an old man with a beard, um, holding the cross with the crucified Christ and somewhere a bird, mm-hmm. and particularly there's a Masaccio in, in Santa Maria Novella in Florence, um, where the the church stretches behind it and it and it forms a barrier. I mean, there's no doubt that those three figures form a barrier, and I kept thinking of that as an image as I was reading Anne's book, and how very different it is from this circle. And also, in particular, I think how um, powerful images are for us and how we internalise them. And I'd, I'd like to ask you something, if you've, if you've anything to um, um, say to us who've not spent two weeks looking at this <laughs> icon about the process of time and the process of slowness and what icons can... Um, help us with who tend to you know rush around. Well we do.
0: Mm. I I think we lead very busy lives and even when we get into retirement there's just so much on offer. Um, And you know it's all good most of it um, but there's a lot of it. And so coming into prayer is never easy and um, personally I find I have to make a bridge in some way whether it's a, a, a walk or a coffee or piece of music or just sitting down quietly in front of an icon and gradually letting that sheepdog work on my thoughts and sort of put them in a place that is just a little bit adjacent so that I can focus and then I find that it just begins to open up. But well, it isn't an easy process, but they're very, very helpful. Mm. There's a beautiful one I have at the moment, I'm sure you will know it, because In the great iconoclasm, Sinai, where St. Catherine's Monastery is, (coughs) was outside of Byzantium at that point. And so it escaped the destruction. And the most wonderful early icons are there. And there's a beautiful icon of Christ, Pantocrator, if you know it. Strong, compassionate face. Well, that's a wonderful way in for prayer now, for me.
1: And so you'll, so you'll sit and look and wait, mm. more or less. Mm. Do you set a time? No. Sometimes I'm just too fidgety and I can't
0: stay long. Right. And other times I can just dwell there. And really, I love Sister Wendy Beckett's thoughts on prayer. She says, what is prayer but letting God take possession of you? And I think, oh, yes, I'll just be here then. And if i'm in overdrive i'm in overdrive but that's not the bit it's the soul it's my desire to be there that connects not whether i've still got thoughts running around up there
1: thank you thank you so um who'd like to ask a question
0: Yes, I, I did try to bring that out, that that is a very common um, criticism. Mm. We're just not used to it, um, but the, I think, it, for me, thinking that, as I used to do, might have done, I don't remember, it would have been out of ignorance, to be honest, because it is not to be worshipped. It should be used as an aid to worship. I mean, going out into the country. Is an aid to worship. Looking up at the stars is an aid to worship. We are very visual creatures, I think. Mm. And I find that very helpful way in. And I'm not worshipping that. Um, as I say, when I take that image of coming into there, that space, and I'm aware of Christ in front of me, I'm not worshipping that I- image, but I'm worshipping Him who gave His life for me. I don't know if that answers.
1: Well, I'm going to ask something then. If I'm going to hog another one, um, that I was. Um, the Trinity is. Um, I mean, it is one of the most difficult doctrines. Yeah. Um, and I was very struck by your image of uh, music, as just an image, but as a, mu- a, a musical image of um, of the interplay. And I wonder if you'd say something about that as an image <laughs> of the Trinity. Well, no
0: image really, really can work because it's all imperfect. Um, but it came to me that when you listen to a piece of music, and I think in the book I've put... Um, for instance, if you were in a concert hall and you listened to one of my favourites, Dame Kiri Kanawa singing Laudate Dominum with a full orchestra, well, you have... Three components there. You have the composer who's Mozart, you have the performers who are the uh, musicians, the singers, the conductor, and you have the sound waves that enable you to hear the music. And in a way, it's a bit like that I feel for myself that for the Trinity, that the father is the one who, in a way, is the composer, the initiator. The son is the performer, the one who carries out what uh, God has for him. The spirit is the agent for us through which we hear. He's the transmitter of spiritual truths to us through which we hear the music and, and as we come into it we are caught up into the whole music. That's, but of course it, it falls down because Mozart <laughs> Is not in Dame Kiri and um, uh, and etc etc. Whereas the father is in the son, the son is in the father. They're all within each other.
1: And um, I was also following on from that. There was a, I was very interested that um, the icons of the Trinity are particularly associated with Pentecost mm. in the Orthodox Church, because. Um, I, and this may be... I'm sure I am being very Western about this, but um, I feel that one of the things we struggle with... I would say a friend of mine who's not here, who works here, um, when I was I was saying about a speaker, I said, he's definitely going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Can we take it? And she said, yes, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. <laughs> and that that's the, the sound waves, end of yeah. thing, is the most problematic because we can... Um, I think to some extent imagine the creator because we can see the creation and we can live in it and we are it um, and we have the Gospels but um, the spirit is is just both more difficult and more in some ways like, like, not really more challenging but the challenge of it being present and being here I think is um, tremendously difficult and I wondered if you'd say something about the spirit and about how we can tune our ears um, perhaps to hear those sound waves. Is that a terrible thing to ask you? No. Otherwise uh, I'm going to take views from the floor, so pray for Anne.
0: Well, <laughs> I could, I one or two things come to mind. Mm. <clears throat> I think the spirit has planted within us a homing device. There is a sense of calling us back to God and we know very often when we get out and done our own thing or we've let ourselves get into a state where we've run dry and and we're fed up and maybe we want to shut it all out and then there's that little something that can't be ignored I think God has put his spirit within us to pull us back to him Um, and he the spirit is the one who interprets God the Father God the Son to us Without him, it would be just head knowledge. With the spirit, it um, fills the whole thing out and makes it real. I'm sure other people could say something more about that than I am saying at the moment. But God saw that the spirit was vital in his connection with us. And I think to be afraid of it is so sad. More and more I'm thinking about this flow which I think is catching us up into the spirit. And it's like this place, or our homes, we're fortunate to have water piped into our houses. But we have to turn the tap on to get the water. It's there all the time. Um, And we can either turn the tap off and resist and say, no, I don't want to know. Or we can just have it on a little manageable trickle. or we can let it flow and, and it's the Holy Spirit that is the one that when we open up, floods in and interprets God and how he wants us to be in our particular situations, uh, what he wants to lead us into, what risks he wants us to take, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. As you were just (coughs) also talking there, and I thought one other little ordinary thing about the Holy Spirit is, I think I'm trying to learn, and it's taken me most of my life, and I'm still not good at it, but getting better, I have to say, to go with little nudges and intuitions and ideas. I think the Spirit is more active in us than we give the spirit credit for. And sometimes if I write that letter, send that email, make that call, do that, I then begin to see why. And I'm sure that's a common experience. And learning to go with that more and more and tr- to trust it is, I think, living in the spirit.
1: And do you find it accumulates? Yeah. It's like working a muscle? <laughs> yes, Not it does. You yeah. get
0: better at it. Yeah. I, I really am more aware now And I do pick up the phone much more quickly if if something comes or somebody Mm. comes to mind. Mm.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Anne.